Hi, I'm Radha Pandey. I am a book artist and papermaker, and I work out of a studio in Norway. Welcome to Cut the Craft. Yeah, it's not. Even I didn't know that. They refer to the rest of Europe as the rest of Europe. (laughs) 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 Or Europe. Or the mainland. <laughs> As if they're not part of it. It's really bizarre. <laughs> like they literally share a border with other European countries. Exactly, but it's Europe and they're not in it. <laughs> Europe and Norway. <laughs> it's really so funny. Oh, uh, welcome to Cut the Craft, everybody. I'm Brian. And I'm Amy. And we are here with Radha Pandey. Uh, a papermaker and book artist working out of Norway. Rada, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Rada, can you tell us a little bit about your work and your process? I make artist books and for some of them I make paper whenever possible. So I'm working with content that interests me, usually writing it, doing the illustrations, turning them into blocks that I can print on a flatbed printing press, and then binding the edition. Sweet. For people who, like a lot of our listeners are from a bunch of different crafts, crafty backgrounds. Um, And so would you be able to explain sort of, I guess, like what the difference is between like a book artist versus just like a book binder? At least what that means to you. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's a better way of putting it. What that means to me. So as a book artist, I suppose you are working more with the content and -hmm. thinking about what you want to say and what you want to convey to your readers and how you want to say it. So book binding is definitely part of it. Uh, The structure and the physicality of the book is definitely part of it, but also how that works with your content and your concept And for me, paper making is also part of that. So I want the paper to be very much part of the core concept of the book. And so bringing all Mm -hmm. of those uh, aspects together, along with hand printing, uh, makes a book artist or an artist book. Hmm. When you say you want the paper to be a part of the concept, how does that generally like play out, I guess, physically in the final result? Yeah, it's different for every project. Um, And it's not always, like I said, it's not always possible for me to actually make the paper. I might uh, purchase some paper that's already been made by someone else or commission someone to make it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, for example, a book that I did called Memory of Long Ago. Um, In that book, I was really trying to think about the color white and Mm -hmm. what that means and what that means for us as human beings perceiving white, uh, whether it's in race or the environment, like, Mm -hmm. you know, landscape covered in snow Mm. or ice, uh, glacial ice, all those kinds of things. And so uh, what really triggered that idea besides, you know, being surrounded by snow was... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, was experimenting with abaca, uh, which is a fiber that's related to the banana family. And oh, cool. the property of abaca that um, the more you beat it, the more control you have in the translucency of the sheet of paper that you end up with. When you say beat it, you're talking about actually processing that fiber into like the pulpy fiber that you would use to then make the paper. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That one of those, that's one of the qualities of that fiber that kind of drew me to it. Uh, it also, the paper is very raspy and it has a interesting sound. And so that's the other aspect of it that I was looking at. And so mm-hmm. controlling that translucency and how you could kind of build those layers in a book format uh, and have that add to what I was saying. So the text uh, and the overall mm-hmm. concept uh that's kind of what led to the creation of that book. So the paper played a huge role getting the recipe in the actual Hollander beta to work right, mm-hmm. to get the exact uh, translucency that I wanted. 
um, and then printing on it, of course, with white ink, and then the book structure as well, which I wanted it to look like um, a sample, like an ice score sample. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. So all of those things played in with each other really well. Um, and all of it started with trying to explore this fiber and see where how it can add to this concept. Cool. That's like a perfect answer to my question. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, welcome. So when you're exploring something like that, is there a is there like a conclusion that is made, do you think? Like do you have a or is it just an exploration? Like the the work itself, it sounds like was just sort of um you know, the the process was important part of it and discovering what the how the concept can kind of come to life did you did you come to any sort of conclusion from that was there like a is that a weird question does that make any sense (laughs) yeah sort of (laughs) I mean um what kind of keeps me interested in this specific aspect of book arts is the fact that I don't know and that there's a mystery a little bit that has to be solved through process and doing Mm -hmm. uh, and pushing something uh, further, whether that's material or structure or idea. Mm -hmm. And so I guess the thing that was answered with that was that this is one way of interpreting this particular idea. Mm. And there could be other ways, and this is just one interpretation, and it's it's in the form of this book, and this is what this particular book looks like. Wow, mm. that's really interesting. I like that. That's so cool. It is really cool. Um, so how did you get into paper making? I mean, it sounds like you know what keeps you interested. <laughs> how did you? How did you kind of like dip your toes into that? It started when I was really small. My mom took a trip to Japan when I was five and she brought back uh, washi, which is a word for Japanese paper. Mm. And I had never seen anything like it in all my five years. (laughs) So (laughs) (laughs) I was just so entranced by it. Uh, And I remember handling that paper and looking at it and just wondering how this could fit into the definition of paper that I had at the time. And I thought, oh, I got to try to make this. And so I was already making paper using, you know, newspaper and just Mm -hmm. blending it up and using a sieve to make circular gray sheets. And I just continued doing that, thinking I would reach a point where I would achieve this mastery (laughs) of perfection. (laughs) So needless to say, it took me a really long time to realize that that's not (laughs) how this paper is made um and so when I was in college our our college in South India at that time um was one of the colleges on this list for Haystack Mountain School of Craft in Maine uh to be offered a fellowship for any one student in that college to come and do any course of their choosing so that year yeah that year it was our college and they literally you know asked our year anybody interested or anybody interested can afford to go to the states and do a workshop in the summer so whoever was interested that was me one of the people we wrote (laughs) (laughs) we wrote our names on pieces of paper and they put them in a hat and picked out a name and it was mine and are you serious yeah and I went upstairs to the library to the computer uh to look up the school and look up the (laughs) look up the courses they had on offer that summer when I was due to go and they had Japanese paper making by Catherine Nash and I was just like okay that's the one I'm doing (laughs) you're like I'll figure (laughs) I'll figure out what kind of newspaper they're grinding up to me. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it just felt like it had to be this way. Mm-hmm. And just mm-hmm. things just kind of fell into place. Um, and so I ended up going to the States. That was 
not my first visit to the states but my first international travel abroad alone by myself mm-hmm. uh pretty late in life i think i was 18 then and went to maine for 3 weeks and studied japanese paper making and it really changed uh not only how i regarded the material and the whole process but also the field i didn't know that there was a whole field you could actually study this in school there were other people that were doing things that were related there were bookbinders in that class there were book artists there were mail artists you know so it just really opened my mind in a way that nothing else had and so i decided mm-hmm. that here are people that are actually doing what they want to do they're enjoying it they're making a living at it and i think that this is the way forward so that's wow. what i'm going to pursue that is so wonderful to hear <laughs> right <laughs> i feel like we were talking to um another crafts person um erica moody and she i think she i i feel like we hear this this over and over from people it's like i didn't think that this was a thing that you could do <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> i just I think it's really wonderful to hear people's sort of um, light bulb moments when it comes to like, oh, I can do this thing. It's really interesting to me and I'm just going to pursue that. Um, So, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, that was definitely a light bulb moment. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, So can you tell us about Indo-Islamic, East Asian and Western papermaking traditions? I know that that's kind of a huge question, so you don't have to <laughs> go in a huge amount of depth, I guess. But um, do they contain their own challenges and strengths? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'll approach that question through telling you about how paper making moved through the world. And that might Ooh, answer cool. some of these questions. So yeah, the earliest supposedly extant example of paper was found in China in 150 BCE. And so just imagine where that is in the world, China. Um, And from there, paper making moved to Korea between uh, 200 and 300 CE, and then on to Japan, 610 CE. Okay, so lots of years in between that transmission. And so from that part of the world, the craft moved to Central Asia, Samarkand, specifically in the 8th century. So that's, you know, that's like over 800 years between its supposed origin and moving to Central Asia. And that's important for a number of reasons. Uh, One, that people everywhere else in the world were using many, many other things to write stuff down not paper Mm -hmm. for a very long time right Mm -hmm. um and that also tells us that when it travels such a great distance it's adapted to the to that new environment and that geographic location so -hmm. you can still do this craft no matter where you are in the world so in that you know china korea japan had a certain kind of fiber so let's say broad example kozo or paper mulberry certain kind of fiber um the paper was made on a flexible screen surface that was woven together using bamboo splints like really teeny tiny um like strips of like bamboo. rods <laughs> yeah rods rods okay um so when this tool and technology adapted to central asia there's perhaps no longer any more paper mulberry. So they used the next best thing, hemp, flax, and clothing, because you can make clothing from plants, right? So cellulose. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that tool also adapted, so no bamboo to make these tools. So grass reeds that were very similar, but you know slightly thicker. And then instead mm-hmm. of weaving these screens together with silk, they were woven together with horsehair, which is like curious cultural adaptation, um, but it worked for them. And then the frame also evolved, and it uh, and it's that adaptation that kind of uh, led to what we call European paper making today. So when that style from Central Asia specifically came 
into the Iberian Peninsula in around 1035 CE, the tools changed a lot as well. And so what we see today as the fixed kind of wire mesh on a frame with a decal on top are an adaptation of the tools that were used in Central Asia in the 8th century. Yeah, so all of those things are so uh, closely linked. And mm-hmm. the time that paper making became really popular and mechanization came in, you know, and that three-person team at the VAT and, you know, multiple others in the paper mill were making over 2,000 sheets a day also coincided with uh, the popularization of movable type in Europe. And Mm. then, you know, we all know of the explosion of the printed book and Mm -hmm. that also led to an explosion of literacy. So people finally had a reason to want to learn how to read because before that you couldn't afford a book. So why would you know how to read, right? Right. 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 So paper really plays such a pivotal role in uh, the advance of human culture and society. Wow. That's so interesting. Just going to sit here for a minute and let that sink in. (laughs) Good. You do that. (laughs) That was so... Uh, like you did such a good job explaining that. Um, and I love it because I'm, I'm such an archeology span buff. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love it. So much. From our sponsor, North Bennett street school. If you missed in the making the beat of blossoms on March 25th, watch the full virtual event at nbss.edu slash ITM. Jamila Zara Felton and North Bennett Street School bookbinding alumni Aaron Fletcher had an enlightening conversation about book arts, zines as communication tools, and sewing their personal stories into their work. The next In the Making virtual event is with Venetian gondola orlock carver Paolo Brandolicio on Thursday, April 8th at 12 noon EDT. He'll speak to us from his workshop on a canal in Venice. All of our ITM events are free to attend. Register at nbss.edu slash ITM. You sort of employ all of these techniques in your work. And um, so how do you go about, I guess, deciding, you know, whether you're like, which sort of tradition of paper that you're, that makes the most sense for whatever project you're working on? Yeah. Oh, good question. So my thesis project at the University of Iowa, um, many years ago now, (laughs) (laughs) was a book that was based on um, 16th century books of anatomy, where you could open up these like movable flaps of the human body to see what was, you know, behind what organ. And so you had like, yeah, you had like printed flaps of the human body, like a normal looking person. And then you could basically flap back his torso and you'd see all the organs. And then you could move all those printed organs too and see what was behind them or inside them. Wow, (laughs) Cool. And so I kind of adapted that idea to a book of botanicals. And Mm. so for that book, I wanted to use the kind of paper that would have been used at that time. And luckily for mm. me, Tim Barrett, who was the professor at the University of Iowa at that time, was researching um, that type of paper, paper in Europe in the 15th century. Mm. And so I decided to use European papermaking methods with uh, using fiber that was a blend of hemp and cotton that was fermented and then cooked. And for the you know deluxe edition, I made... 10 copies for which I had to make about 430 sheets of paper. Wow. So that's how I made that decision. Do you, so that's how I made that decision. (laughs) Yeah, fair (laughs) enough. (laughs) Um, So uh, like, is there, I know we've talked to, um, in fact, just before you, we interviewed uh, ceramicist uh, Akira Sataki. And he was telling us that when he makes ceramics and he fires them, like you end up, there's at least in his wood kiln, you know, only the only about a third of them are like top notch, perfect, ready to go. 
and the other you know then there's another middle third that's like Meh, okay and then there's another third where you're like uh-oh and um and so with paper is it kind of similar do you have to like you know you mentioned 400 what was it 460 sheets or something um yeah, 420 sheets Okay. Yeah. So do you have to like make 500 in order to end up with that amount? Is there some like risk or loss uh, in that process? Yeah. I made 430 because I wanted to end up with at least 250. Mm. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And it, I really, really overshot because I was using a large mold that I wasn't totally used to physically. And so I was Mm. accounting for, you know, a bunch of sheets that may not be as even as I wanted or as thick as I wanted. I was also trying to get it done in three days. And so (laughs) I was was counting on moving quickly. And so when you move quickly with that size sheet and just the paper making process in general, you will have some error. And Mm -hmm. so I was just taking, yeah, so I was taking all that into account. And so my goal was 250 good ones. Wow. Dang. Wow. That's, that's like a, yeah, that's a, almost half (laughs) yeah and i like i said i had like a lot of good paper left over so i really really overshot but i was playing it trying to play it very safe i just didn't want to go back and restart the entire process again totally yeah that makes sense um so can you tell us about the hussein kagsies uh why is that family such an important link to islamic paper making yeah, so the Kagzi family uh, live in Rajasthan, which is a northwestern state in India. And Kagzi actually means paper maker. And so their family claims that they are descendant from the Kagzis that came into India in the 13th century from Central Asia. Whoa. And so they say that they their you know paper making style and method and everything has been learned from the direct descendants of the Samarkandi paper makers. And so it's true that a lot of the paper making that I've seen them do and the accounts that I've read and the things that I've talked to them talked to them about do hark back to that and all the other research that I've done. And so I mean, I don't know because I'm not related to them if the 13th century is like a real <laughs> date, you know, but yeah. I believe that they believe that and there is enough evidence to support that they are descendants from those paper makers. And so cool. all those paper makers came into India and settled, you know, around northern India uh, and a little bit beyond. And so they're important because they're pretty much... At the time that I was researching in 2012, they were one of seven families that were doing this craft the way it was done in the 14th century in India and keeping that tradition alive. Since I found another cooperative unit in Maharashtra, which is um, kind of like middle and west. So it's the state that Bombay or Mumbai is in. So mm-hmm. in that state, I found another uh paper co-op that does the same method but not as they're not such sticklers to the traditional way so they don't use the the hemp that the kagzis of sanganer use and they don't uh they use cotton basically uh they may not do the double dipping method that we think is so common in this style of paper making so small differences but at least the tools are the same and uh they're all uh, they are they're all Muslim and so that's another thing about this craft is that it's generational but it's also um, kind of tied to religion in a way or the culture mm-hmm. of Islam I should say so mm-hmm. it's tied to the culture of Islam and that's not to say that all the paper that was being produced in the 14th century was only used for the production of religious manuscripts, Islamic manuscripts. It was also used for currency and note-taking and all of those other things that we use paper for even today. Um, So it's kind of problematic to say, you know, this is Islamic papermaking or Islamic world papermaking even. So that's why we have adopted this new word Islamicate because it kind of encompasses the culture of Islam 
as opposed to a specific geographic location or the religion of Islam, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, very interesting. Um, can you can you walk us through the process that they go through? That's I. So what I'm getting at is like I was look watching um, some of the. I think you have a video of of these people uh, making paper and for someone who's not um, well-versed in how paper is made necessarily, like I saw them um, burnishing paper and I was just like, what is going on? Like, (laughs) what, 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 like, my gosh, they use agate stones. And I'm just like, um, yeah, tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, so that burnishing is a is a finishing technique that's very particular to the style of paper making. And so you won't normally find this in any other tradition uh-huh. done in this particular way. And so after the paper is made, it's sized using wheat starch, at least in the Indo-Islamic tradition. And so sizing basically seals the surface of the paper and closes up any like gaps mm-hmm. uh microscopic gaps in the fiber and mm-hmm. so then the paper becomes uh, impervious to aqueous media so you can write on it and that's done throughout you know multiple paper traditions but after the paper sized in this tradition it's burnished or polished using an agate stone And people have also, there are records of people using bone and horn as well. And so burnishing is compacting the fibers even more. uh, Mm -hmm. And it's polishing the paper. So it's really kind of sealing the surface in a way. And it prepares it for calligraphy with a reed pen and ink or a metal pen and ink. Mm -hmm. And so this is the characteristic of the style of paper making that's specific. Yeah. And... It varies slightly based on the, you know, uh, calligraphic tradition, what the size might be or how it's burnished, but the process remains the same. Wow. So does that, so if it, if it wasn't sized and burnished, would the ink just like sink into the fibers and it would just be really blurry? Is that... Yeah, yeah, that's okay. that's what sizing prevents. Mm-hmm. Um, and then burnishing has the added advantage of, um, like I said, sealing the surface. It creates like a sheen. So Islamic mm-hmm. manuscripts, when you turn the page, you'll see that if they catch the light, they kind of shine at you. Oh, wow. Um, and so that's the polishing or burnishing effect too. And it holds the ink on top of the surface instead of letting it sink in. So it's very easy to correct mistakes because you can take a fine uh, knife and essentially scrape or cut away the ink and brush it off. Wow. Cool. And just, you just have the actual paper underneath, not, you know, gray, something gray because the ink sunk in. Wow. Right. Like it would be like trying to write on a paper towel or something. Right. <laughs> Where yeah. it's like meant to absorb it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Command Z, basically. <laughs> Command Z, did you say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so th- this is like a total rabbit hole, but like, do you, when it comes to preserving or looking at those old Islamic texts, and the paper and the, you know, the really beautiful illustrations and writing and stuff um, that's on that paper, does it, do, does the ink come off at all? Like, does it, are there situations where the environment has been really harsh and all the, pa- like when you turn the page, all of the, <laughs> everything just like poofs off and smoke? <laughs> I don't know. I hope not. I haven't, I haven't talked to anybody that said that to me. Okay, that's good. I was just like, oh my gosh, I hope that's not a problem that happens. No, I think there's enough. There's enough to hold on to the ink. So only okay. if you're using like a sharp knife, I've seen that just come off. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Had a moment of panic there. <laughs> I think there's a um a Calvin and Hobbes comic where uh he is reading his book and he lifts it up and all the letters fall off the page and that's like his excuse why he didn't do this homework. <laughs> Construction has been moving along the road beside my place for a couple weeks. They're redirecting a river flowing underneath the street in nearby buildings. I work only a couple doors away, so as it gets further from the house, it's getting closer to my workplace. A quieter morning will simply shift to a louder day. I'm a patient person, but can I get some relief? Certainly I'm not hearing things at the same decibel the workers are, and I'm thankful for them doing a job most don't want to do. But also, I don't get paid to tolerate the sounds I cause. I get paid to work with children who often don't understand that when they call out my name, it prevents me from being able to fully hear who already has my attention and stalls their mission. This is especially true concerning the muffling from COVID masks that make many have to repeat themselves multiple times. Throw in the thwapping sounds of air hockey, people not using their inside voices during play, a TV blaring, some game or video, and somebody often voicing their frustration that the group isn't doing exactly what they want to be doing. And it's all very sharp and tinny. In order to manage, I have to listen for the rhythms and tell myself it's industrial music. Like how the horn of an approaching train can sound like a cello note in the distance if you have the right disposition. That, and I make this the last metallic sound I allow in my canals after I work and the construction stops. The rest of the time I want my feet shuffling on the wooden floor or the sounds of birds, maybe a conversation had or overheard. I think I'm even going to save up for a bowl and spoon from Danielle Rosebird, so I won't even have to hear the clink of silverware on my dishes or against my teeth. Danielle lives out in Maine and specializes in both functional and conceptual vessels. All her objects contain a bit of both in a much smoother way than my home and workplace share the sound of a big drill between them. Some of her bowls have caterpillar legs, one of her sculptures is like a cubist-informed Rubik's Cube, which sounds redundant, but if you check out her Instagram, you'll see what I mean. She's just come out with a book called The Handcarved Bowl, and she's next episode's guest. Check it out if you need or want to hear a solid conversation about hollow objects. So, um... A lot of your work revolves around nature, around natural landscapes and how they change over time and our collective relationship with nature. Can you elaborate on why that's important for you personally to explore? I think that that's important to me because that's the way I was brought up as the mm. short answer. Um, <laughs> and so... My parents really put a lot of um, value in appreciating nature and the natural world and natural processes when I was growing up and valuing life, uh, no matter how small. And my, my father's profession uh, is documentary filmmaker, for, mm -hmm. uh, and he makes films on nature and wildlife. And so a lot of times Ooh. when we went with him for shoots we would mm -hmm. uh, we would spend a lot of time just sitting in jeeps in a national park waiting uh, <laughs> quietly for something to emerge you know <laughs> in the direction of where the camera was pointed so yeah, those, please <laughs> those hours were just spent you know kind of sitting quietly and being enamored by all the things that were happening around us and these mm -hmm. Uh, trips into the forest would start at the crack of dawn and then you'd be there before until 10 or 11 so you know four or five solid hours uh, mm -hmm. just watching nature wake up around you and things happen cool. that you wouldn't normally see happen if you weren't at that place at that time mm -hmm. sure. so appreciating you know just patience 
and the fact that things take time and that to appreciate natural beauty you have to be very present and in the moment mm-hmm. so i think that taught me how to look at the world around me through that lens and then mm-hmm. trying to capture that in a way that i could make other people see it in the same way is what i'm trying to do in my work um mm-hmm. trying trying to show them how i see this particular thing like erosion and sedimentation or Mm-hmm. ice cores and the melting of ice and the freezing of ice and the ongoing processes around us that we kind of dismiss or don't really notice anymore wow that's so nice i love that uh yeah it's almost like i mean this might be some kind of a cliche or something but it's like you're like the camera lens and instead but instead of like <laughs> the photo we're seeing like a book <laughs> you know the i can't remember the book but um it just looked like I was watching a topographical map of ice <laughs> as you were kind of like going through it. I just thought that was really interesting. So yeah, I wonder which book that is. It's the it was like blue and. White. Oh okay okay yeah the is ice that... the ice yeah. kind of threw me off so yeah, yeah. so yeah maybe <laughs> it was just because it was blue and white. <laughs> um. <laughs> I think that's the video quality, unfortunately, but it's blue and tan. Oh, okay. okay. And so it's that book is called Deep Time, and it's about the relationship between water and soil. Oh, yeah. And okay. erosion and sedimentation. Yeah. And so they're loose pages in this box that's recessed. And so the reader is meant to, you know, pick up one page and place it on the left and then Mm -hmm. keep adding pages to the left as they go through the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And the idea behind that was kind of to make people realize that they're participating in erosion and sedimentation on a daily basis, just Mm -hmm. through living and, Mm -hmm. you know, other like large scale (laughs) human activities. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also just to call to their attention, the shapes that I've cut out, which are the largest shapes uh, on our planet that are shaped by the forces of erosion and sedimentation oh yeah and so that's the that's the kind of topography that i'm looking at and then each page is printed using wood engravings of the areas around mount everest so those are the top topographical maps that i've referenced so -hmm. each one is a little bit different and as you go through the book the lines become tighter and tighter so you're kind of moving higher and higher and mm-hmm. at the same time, the level of um, the water or the indigo that I've used to create that uh, water image kind of rises and takes over the page. So that relationship between water and soil also changes. Mm-hmm. And so I, when, you know, many people don't have the patience to go through the entire book. Like many <laughs> will just look at it, look at it. And then go through the first two pages and then ask, does it go all the way through like this? And I say yes. And then they kind of pick up the entire stack and flip it. Ah. And I can probably count on one hand how many people have had the patience in front of me while while I'm watching to go through the whole book. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And so the entire book is about time, right? And patience and how like time for us is so relative when we think about how much time it took for the earth to become the shape that it has and how little time we are taking to completely change that shape. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why I used wood engraving because when people read that in the colophon and if you know how long that kind of process takes you, you hopefully think about the time it was taken to produce that one book. Mm-hmm. That's also why I chose not to laser cut all those pieces I cut them out by hand so that people are thinking about the time it took Mm. and hopefully you know the the reader's thinking process then is tying back to the concept of the book that I started out with it sounds like that process is sort of mirrored in your experience of cutting all of those blocks individually I mean did you kind of experience that a similar sort of when you're like, I don't know, just barely over halfway (laughs) cutting all of those blocks. 
and then you're just like whoa this is taking a really long time and or like what kind of what kind of i guess thoughts were you experiencing as you were doing that or were you just lost in the process of trying to make sure you got the line right or did that give you to ample time to like meditate on that concept i guess yeah i mean that happened twice that happened like right at the beginning when i started carving the block the first block i thought oh my god what have i done <laughs> <laughs> it's too late now yeah. um and then it happened again when i started cutting those shapes and i thought oh hell like this the addition is what 35 and each one has 15 of these pages how long is that going to take me uh, yeah i'm still cutting i haven't finished the edition oh wow <laughs> you touched a nerve brian <laughs> i'm sorry oh. Oh, um, let's see. Yeah. So how has the history of the book <laughs> influenced your work? And can you talk about how it collaborates with your interest in natural history? Sure. So a good example of the answer to that question is the book that I'm working on now, mm. um, which is still a work in progress. It's been on my mind and I've been working with it for about three years. And the book is about plants, of course, and <laughs> how our relationship with them and the natural world changed over time. And so the illustrative style draws heavily from uh, Mughal miniatures. So that's like the medieval equivalent of the medieval time in India. Mm -hmm. um, and so miniature painting at that time was at its height and the rulers that were in India for that particular period were very interested in arts and culture and mm. nature. And so a lot of the commissioned work that was coming out of the courts was uh, portraits of plants and flowers and mm. um, plants that were of particular interest to the emperor, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at those portraits, there's, you know, you get a real sense of the artistry, the artist himself, but also the skill. And it completely changes uh, what, what you might, you, what you might think of, of that particular plant. I mean, some of them are not, uh, you know, they're not scientifically accurate or anything, but that also gives you an idea of the time and how that, how that particular plant was perceived. Mm -hmm. When the British came to India, uh, that changed quite a bit. So what, how they perceived the nature in India was pretty much purely through the, through the lens of commerce. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the plants that they had interest in were taken back to Kew Gardens, propagated, and then sent to the rest of the colonies uh, and propagated further for use in their commerce and industry. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways in which they could preserve these plants, you know, because not all of them would survive the journey, they would be taking hundreds and hundreds so that a few would survive the journey, mm -hmm. uh, was by drawing. And that's when the scientific botanical emerged. So even mm -hmm. though those European botanicals are beautiful and exquisite, the purpose behind them is scientific study and commercial gain. It's not the appreciation of nature and natural beauty. And so that completely, you know, that changed the way we were approaching nature, just our interest in it. And that was very obvious in the kinds of um, illustrations and the books that were being produced. And so when the Mughal Empire dissolved, all of those um, artists, the Mughal miniaturists that were patronized by the court, then found employ with the British and their skills were used, but in a completely different way. So they were also then making these scientific botanicals using, you know, the, their tiny brushes, which is why it's called miniature painting, because it's such small brush strokes. Hmm. And so the book kind of analyzes this shift in our perception of the natural world and its long-term impact. And so the Plants that I've chosen to represent in the book are plants that the British had no commercial interest in that are native to India. Cool. And so their only sort of their only reason for being 
uh, still in India and not all over the world for the most part is that they're just beautiful and they don't have any commercial value. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I guess the text kind of covers that uh, that transition and the history and the focus and how the focus changed. And the book is actually... um, it's kind of hard to explain. So it opens like a regular codex. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has two covers that open further outwards, if you know what I mean. From one side, it looks like it has two spines. And from the other side, it looks like it has one big spine. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And so cool. one side opens like an Islamic manuscript, which is where all the illustrations will be. And then the other side opens like a Western codex where all the text will be along with these maps that show trade routes and things like that. Oh, interesting. And I'm planning on doing the illustrations using wood engraving. And then I'll be handing them off to a miniature painter in Delhi to finish up in any way that he sees fit. So it oh, could be, wow. you know, adding a detail or adding something in the background or adding a little accent somewhere. Wow. I'm so excited cool. to see that. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love collaboration. Oh, yeah, it's the best. The John C. Campbell Folk School in Brasstown, North Carolina is still hiring. Also, don't forget that registration is open for their May through December of 2021 classes. For information about available job positions and how to apply, and to see upcoming courses via their e-catalog, visit folkschool.org. This handy web address is also where you can sign up for their print catalog if that's more your thing. And finally, scholarships are available for in-person classes. For more information, visit the scholarships page at, you guessed it, folkschool.org. North House Folk School on the shores of Lake Superior is taking applications for their artisan development program. The ADP artisans will focus on craft study, teaching skill development, public engagement, and international connections. They also have a new scholarship program, work study sessions, and local discounts. They're hoping to increase the diversity of age and race in their student body to offer opportunities to local residents and support the learning of those with professional aspirations in a particular craft area. More information can be found at northhouse.org. In the few times I've gotten to like sort of commission something, I love when you can just let the person do their thing because you know and trust that they're good at it. And so that's it must be really exciting for you or even after all of this work, and all of this like um, like build up, I suppose you still have to like let it go in into someone else's hands, and then you get to like just be surprised. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is it about uh, your craft that satisfies something you don't feel you would get from another career? Uh, what are some of the challenges? Well, one thing that's hugely satisfying is working with my hands and then looking at the end result and just being shocked that I could I could accomplish it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's hugely satisfying because I kind of <laughs> surprise myself every time. Um, <laughs> and it's also a challenge because I'd never know that I... I never know if I'm going to succeed in what I envision at the outset. And so Mm -hmm. that's part Mm -hmm. of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. What's challenging is that I don't get to do it all the time uh, Mm -hmm. because it's Mm -hmm. not, um, creativity doesn't always come, you know, like 24 seven, whenever you want Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And so I'm doing a lot of other things to keep myself going and keep myself inspired but also needing to do many other things to make a living because Mm -hmm. selling Mm -hmm. artist books isn't something that I don't, I don't think unless you're really, really successful and super well-known, you can make a, you can just like sit back comfortably and enjoy your life. just selling Mm -hmm. your work. (laughs) You have to do like a hundred other things. So Mm -hmm. I also teach Mm -hmm. um, and I lecture about the history of papermaking. I'm writing a couple of books 
uh, one on the history of paper making in India, and the other one is a collaboration with different paper makers on uh, the use of natural dyes and handmade paper and that oh whole gosh, aspect cool. of it. So oh I have a lot of things happening at the same time to keep it less uh, challenging and intimidating. Oh my God. How do you, number one, I like it because I can hear all of the like gears just whirring in overdrive in Amy's head right now <laughs> because you just said like, <laughs> you said so many words that are just like, very good positive triggers for Amy, like natural <laughs> dyes and <laughs> scholarly books. And <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that! I love that you can hear that happening in my head. I'm like, I could just like jumping out of my skin. Like, I I can't wait for these books. I want to like devour them. <laughs> <laughs> my heart started beating faster by proxy. <laughs> but um, uh. Great. What was the other thing I was going to say? <laughs> um, hold on one second. Let me gather my thoughts. No, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, yeah. I remember. I remember. So, I mean, how how do you balance all of that? Do you kind of have like, okay, Tuesdays and Thursdays are my scholarly research days and like Monday Mondays are this day and that? Or, like, you know, how does that work for you? Uh, haphazardly. <laughs> so <laughs> the way I approach it basically since I don't have a job like a normal person yeah. um, <laughs> is basically by testing the temperature every day and seeing what I feel like doing and so I have a list of things mm -hmm. that I should be working on and I tell myself that I have to get I have to do at least one thing on that particular list every day so whether okay. it's like reading someone's essay to edit it, writing my own essay, reading an article, um, doing an edition of doing one copy of Deep Time and finishing it, or, you know, taking a walk and going out somewhere to draw something for the book that I'm working on. Hmm. So it doesn't matter what it is as long as I do one thing a day. And that way I feel like I'm able to meet a goal, any goal, keep my mind active and mm -hmm. keep my hands mm -hmm. moving, which I think is really important. Mm. Cool. I like that. That's really nice. Yeah, I like that. Maybe I'll, I should try that one. That way of <laughs> approaching the world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so tell us about Halden Bookworks. Yeah. Yeah, so... Holland Bookworks is a fashion project that Johann Solberg, my partner, and I have uh, been working on together for the last few years. Um, it is a book art studio in an old cotton factory <clears throat> in the city of Halden in Norway. Oh. And we bought the place a few years ago, and it was just kind of a skeleton, you know, so it had like walls and dividers and places that were windows uh, and places that could be doors and so what we've been doing is basically building up that space to become a more functional studio it was a sound studio before so it didn't have much and so what we've done in the past few years is to build up uh, the floor in the kitchen and what we call the dry studio which is like an office space and library and kind of chill area that we can heat and we've built up the letterpress studio, which is now fully functional in the outdoor space right by the window. Cool. And we're working on our paper studio. So we have all the stuff, but the goal for this year is to waterproof the floor and make it more functional. Wow. Cool. Because this is like, you y'all own, you sort of purchased like either, I guess the equivalent of like, different apartments or floors or something within this building. So there are other artists and stuff who are around you, right? Yeah. So it's a collective and there's, I think about 10 okay. other people that are in the building doing various things. And so far we're the only ones doing uh, book related things. Wow. Cool. So, I mean, will you talk about, cause I was, I was looking over that website and I'd heard y'all talk about it and you'd sent me progress photos and stuff like that but then I saw the website and I was like oh I didn't realize it was like already going and so uh 
It's so cool. I mean, will you talk about, because y'all are hoping to offer residencies and workshops, and it's not just a private studio mm. per se. No, definitely not. So it's open for residencies. I think the applications will start at the end of this year, and we would like to have people doing residencies in the print studio, the paper studio once it's ready, and the bindery, uh, which cool. I didn't mention. Johan already had a bindery in that building, which is one of the reasons why we chose that building. Uh, in the basement. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful space. And apart from that, we hope to teach workshops and host other people uh, to teach workshops. And that's starting this spring in socially distant workshops that are only open to locals for now. Mm -hmm. So in the future, mm -hmm. hopefully, you know, we'll have people from all over coming. Wow, that's amazing. Cool. Uh, Radha, who's someone or maybe a type of person inside of um, bookmaking that you admire and maybe someone or a type of person outside of that that you admire? So someone that I have long admired inside within my craft is Asao Shimura, uh, who is a paper maker who lives in Philippines. He's Japanese. Mm -hmm. And I studied with him for two weeks in 2010. So over 10 years ago. Um, and I went there right after I went to Haystack and it was Catherine Nash who told me to look him up because he was in my part of the world. And he is a kook. Um, <laughs> really sweet uh, kook. And why I say that with so lovingly and with conviction is because he is following this passion of paper making in this very remote, tiny little village in the Philippines and has been for decades. And it's mm, not like wow. he has a lot of company or, you know, it's not like he has an entire community of book artists or paper makers around him, like some of us are fortunate to have. He's just doing it mm -hmm. for the love of it and has been doing it for almost all his life. And wow. he's making it work and he's doing it because he loves it. And even though he doesn't have access to, you know, amazing facilities or even uh, water in his actual studio, he's, he's excelling in what he does. He's an amazing paper maker. I saw some of the sheets that he made and I thought, I just was blown away. Oh, wow. Um, and they were pigmented and naturally dyed using pigments that he'd made. And I was oh, just amazed wow. that someone had that much dedication uh, to the craft to do that he also makes kami ito and weaves uh, shifu which is a uh, woven paper thread hmm. and he was doing that for someone in the neighboring village so i said where's the village and he pointed over to the next mountain you know like <laughs> way across the valley and he was like she lives there and she makes obi belts and i make the shifu so that she can make obi belts and send them off to wherever Wow. wow. And so he's managed to, you know, sustain that love and that interest by doing doing precisely what he wants to do. And I think that's something to be admired that he doesn't, you know, he doesn't need a social media presence or anything like that to yeah. stay motivated. Like some yeah. people are finding. Totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I love, I can't believe that I mean, as a paper maker, it's pretty important to have access to water. So that's incredible that he doesn't have access to it in his studio. I remember when uh, I was there, I was there with another um, person who was with me in that um, two week period. And the first day in the studio, he said, OK, we have to fill up the vat. So I said, OK. So he said, OK, that's all the way down the hill. We got to just get it up bucket by bucket. So we went down the hill, two buckets and... It was a hand pump and, you know, a bunch of people by the hand pump. So you just kind of wait your turn, fill up your bucket, carry it all the way up. And then that's one bucket in this giant vat. <laughs> and then you do it all over again until it's full. And he, I looked at him and he was just standing in the corner and smiling and kind of giggling. And I was like, what? And he's like, if you weren't here, I would have to do all of this by myself. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's good free labor. <laughs> that's hilarious that's so funny so yeah one person outside my craft I would say Annie Goldsworthy 
Mm. Oh, yeah. yes. I love Andy Goldsworthy. Yeah, yeah I love his work. Uh, mm. And I think the patience and time aspect of it is what I love most. Mm-hmm. That he can convey that through his work so keenly. Mm, totally and he doesn't have to say anything it's just it speaks for itself yeah i've i loved watching a documentary uh with him this was probably about 10 years ago or something maybe and it's just great because he's just sitting there and he's just like i need the rocks (laughs) and you're like whoa (laughs) i know what you mean (laughs) like i think we've watched the same documentary (laughs) (laughs) oh there's that one part when he's like stacking all those sticks up underneath that tree branch and he gets almost done and then it just the whole thing collapses (laughs) and he just he just sits there and he just goes yes and then he just picks up a stick and then he starts it all over that was the moment for me too he had a similar moment when he was working with ice and the entire thing yeah. collapsed and he did the exact same thing. And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> I need that level of patience to really yeah. appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Totally, totally. <laughs> um, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Cool. Oh, what a great recommendation. Yeah, yeah very I good. love Andy Goldberg. Yeah, he's great. Um, so outside of the craft room now, what else are you interested in? Reading science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah awesome. what are you reading at the moment i'm reading dune oh i just read that have you read it before no this i just read it uh maybe three months ago i, I read it for the first did time did you read the entire it's, series no i just read dune i think you have to read the series <laughs> is it it's good it's, it's good. So good all right oh my god oh my god my friend uh ian hart is who do introduced me to my first uh science fiction foray maybe i think at the beginning of 2019 and i've read so much science fiction since then i re- yeah it's great i never thought i would like it but i love yeah, it yeah i never so. thought i would like it either and i just got so sucked into the genre i'm i'm sold i'm a huge fan now oh man That's i'm going to awesome. have to read it now it's been sort of floating in and out of my uh Dude, you got to. You've yeah. got to read it. I'm okay. really envious yes. that you still have that. You know, you're going to start with it now. I'm so <laughs> envious. <laughs> yeah. I know. Um, all right. All right. Done deal. <laughs> so, Rada, if someone wants to see more of your work, where can they find you? Yeah, they can go to my website, which is radhapande.com, or they can follow me on Instagram, pande.radha. Cool. Sweet. Well, Radha, thank you so, so much for joining us. It was so nice hearing from you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Yeah, it was great. Thanks for coming on the show. (laughs) Okay, next up, we have an interview with woodcarver Danielle Rosebird. And to give you a glimpse of the good times to come, here is a brief clip from that interview. It's, It's an incredibly vulnerable spot to be in, and I feel it every time I talk about it because... I might not have hit that. It may not be received like that. Well, I'd say that bodes better for your book than just saying like, oh yeah, definitely nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Amy, besides the annual giveaway, what do we get? Well, a free way to support us is to rate and review the show. And please hit subscribe while you're at it. And thanks to all the people who have taken the time to rate and review us in addition to subscribing (laughs) and just listening in general. It is super sweet. It means so much and it helps people find the show. (laughs) Thanks for your support on Patreon. We got better headphones and I got a new chair so that I don't have to go to the chiropractor as much. (laughs) And And that's worth announcing twice. That's worth announcing twice. <laughs> right, right. We'll, we'll cut it out after that. These headphones are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it also helps us pay for our website, hosting the audio, recording equipment, and other bills. And more support means making the show a more sustainable endeavor. Also, as many of you know, we've committed 15% of our donated income to putting money towards craft scholarships. Thank you so much to Matthew, Jessica, and 
other Matthew for uh, supporting the show um, in the last month. <laughs> we also have some benefits, as we mentioned in the beginning of the episode, for the various tiers. So there is more to be had than just a satisfaction at the thought of supporting the show <laughs> and craft scholarships. So if you need right. more than that, you can get it. <laughs> right. You can follow us on Instagram at Cut the Craft Podcast to see images of our guest's work and stay up to date on happenings and releases. And you can find us both on Instagram at Amy underscore Umble and at BH Beidler. And a huge thank you to our sponsors, John C. Campbell Folk School in Brasstown, North Carolina, North House Folk School in Grand Marais, Minnesota, and North Bennett Street School in Boston, Massachusetts, all of whom play a huge part in keeping handcraft alive and thriving by offering workshops and other educational opportunities in handcraft. Of course, thank you to Brad Vetter for your graphic design, to The High Divers and Luke Mitchell of The High Divers for your help with production and the sweet tunes. Uh, and then also to Justin Williams for writing those uh, tidbits to uh, introduce the guests every episode. So we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Thanks. See you next time. <laughs>